This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear Deborah Holyfield teach on how the gospel compels us to speak words of life. Deborah is the executive director of Presbyterians Protecting Life. This seminar was originally recorded at the 2019 General Assembly. Let's listen to Deborah Holyfield as she speaks on words of life. My name is Deborah Holyfield. I am the Executive Director of Presbyterians Protecting Life. Um, how many of you know who PPL is? Oh, all right, two, good. You get an extra pen. Uh, <laughs> Presbyterians Pro-Life was started 40 years ago in the PCUSA and had used most of its influence over the course of those years to try to educate commissioners and congregations and things like that to um, deal with overtures and other policies of the PCUSA. Um, after the fracturing of the PCUSA began and it started splitting off into various denominations, uh, we have done some um, retooling and refiguring one of the things we did is we changed our name to Presbyterians Protecting Life because of two reasons. We thought it would be important to take a step back from the political history of PPL and the PCUSA uh, that we would, um, and, and we liked the, the protecting as being more um, active and less paperwork than PPL has been in the past. Um, we held commissioner luncheons at general assemblies for PCUSA. Uh, some of our speakers included Charles Colson, Mother Teresa came and spoke uh, to PCUSA General Assembly uh, at the invitation of Presbyterians Pro-Life. Uh, her speech is still uh, on film on YouTube on our channel if that's something that would interest you. We don't lobby in the federal or state governments and now we serve every Presbyterian and Reformed denomination that is interested in life issues. Uh, right now, that besides the PCUSA, that includes the PCA, the E, let's see if I can do all these acronyms, uh, PCA, EPC, ECO, RPCNA, ARP, and the Fellowship uh, Affinity Group. Um, the OPC um, is open to what we do, but they are also uh, a denomination that prefers to work uh, within their own bailiwick and does not associate with parachurch organizations, uh, which is the only reason that we're not, they're not on the list. Um, our mission statement is that we're compelled by the gospel 
to equip Presbyterians to champion human life from fertilization to natural death. Um, what that means is that we only talk to Presbyterians, and that's a very narrow focus. But Presbyterians are very peculiar people, are we not? And we look at life in a certain way. And so all of our materials are created from the Reformed perspective. Um, the Imago Dei, uh, the sovereignty of God, um, and away from the utilitarian value of human life um, to the value of human life as seen by God. So those are different things to different people. Uh, can I do this? Am I ah, I'm technically challenged, but I'm doing my best. Um, the way we like to approach this is through our core values of gospel, relationship, equipping, advocacy, and Presbyterian identity. Um, I already talked to you a little bit about the Presbyterian identity. Um, when I talk about the gospel, what I mean is that we are compelled by the gospel to do this. Um, if you are students of scripture, you know that there is a life thread that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This is just because the word uh, abortion or pro-life or I don't know, it's like Trinity, it doesn't appear in the scripture. Uh, but it's certainly there, it certainly exists. Uh, I don't believe that it is proof texting to pull out uh, certain verses as being life-affirming verses uh, when you have a Bible that is chocked full of those scriptures. So I think it's, it emerges as a theme. Um, advocacy, uh, we are doing this on behalf of people who don't have a voice. That not only includes the unborn and the preborn, it includes uh, people who are, well, people who have birth anomalies. Uh, for example, uh, Down syndrome people. Um, people who are in chronic pain, people who are suicidal. Um, every point on that whole spectrum of life between fertilization and natural death needs an advocate. And so even though we, our emphasis is on abortion uh, <coughs> and pro-life from that perspective, uh, we have materials and we advocate in all of those areas. I'll bet if you took a poll of your congregations, you would find that the people in the pews have opinions all over the place, just like the people on the street. Um, I know that uh, this is a conservative-leaning uh, denomination, as are many, or if not most, of the denominations that uh, are no longer affiliated with PCUSA. But sometimes, in the more conservative denominations, we find that if they have very strong positions, very strong pro-life identities, um, that there is almost a full stop at that point. Um, there are churches who act independently, which is good. There are people who act independently, which is always good. People's hearts are on fire for this issue in many places. Um, but the impetus to do that trickles down from the top. So it, anything that you can do to encourage your denominational officials to um, encourage congregations to act um, would be very helpful. And how do I know this? Well, there are people in your congregations, and you probably know this, who are wounded by abortion. It's a common experience. One in four women, that's a lot of people, will have an abortion by the time they are age 45. Of those women, 70% self-identify as Christians. Okay, um, you know, we can, we can argue all day long about who's a Christian, who's not a Christian. They believe they're Christians, and not only do they believe it, they attended church in the month before their abortions. 
They did not talk to their pastors. They did not talk to the ladies group. They didn't, they might have confided in a best friend. But the fact of it is, is our churches are full of people who are wounded by abortion. Of those women, 59% already had children. This is hard for some people to process, um, but we're not in their shoes, and I'm just saying that that is the statistic that goes with that. What that means, though, is that there may be 50 million post-abortive women. Uh, we've had more than 60 million abortions since the 70s. Um, <coughs> so you've got all those women, then you have all the men who were involved, uh, then you have grandparents of children, you have um, brothers and sisters of those kids, uh, and of course the future generations who are affected, but um, we, they're not in our pews, but it's a significant number of people. Also, women over 60. A lot of times I'll have women from older congregations that will come up to our booth and say, oh, well, we don't have any young women in our church, and so we support the Crisis Pregnancy Center, but we don't um, have need of any Bible studies or anything like that in our, in our church because we're just all older. Well, women over 60 were the first ones. They were in their childbearing years in the 70s when Roe versus Wade was decided. They were the first ones to be lied to that it's a clump of cells. Uh, and that it is not, in fact, a baby with a separate DNA, and um, that this is a separate person. Um, all that information has been really publicized probably in the last just 10 or 12 years. Doctors have known about it a lot longer, but it's only become common knowledge, I think, probably in the last decade. And so you have a bunch of elderly women who are coming to realize that things were not as they were told. They may have been married to the same man for 40, 50 years by now. Uh, they might not have said anything to their husbands. And this is a big secret to keep over the course of a half century marriage. And so by not offering them abortion recovery groups, they're not being given the opportunity to process uh, their experience and to receive uh, God's grace and God's mercy um, for this thing that they have been burdened by for so many years. Abortion was, of course, a man's issue as well. Um, men are finally, I don't know if they're finding their voice or they're being con uh, given permission to speak, but we are finding many more men uh, are interested in speaking out about their experiences of wives and girlfriends uh, who have uh, had abortions or who they have encouraged to abort, uh, daughters sometimes. Um, a lot of times you will hear in conversation with pro-choice people that uh, the church has only had a position on abortion and life issues for the last 40 years since Roe versus Wade. That's not true. Um, you can go all the way back in history and find that the church has been pro-life. Um, there is a book called When Children Became People, and the premise of the book is that Christianity invented children, that before Christians came along, children were considered to be property. They were referred to not as human beings, they were referred to as its, uh, it sounds a lot like what we are experiencing today. Um, there is, in this book, he explains that they were property of their fathers, not their mothers. That would be an interesting flip on our social questions today, wouldn't it? <coughs> they were subject to violence and sexual abuse. They were aborted. Uh, if they weren't aborted before they were born, they were laid out for exposure. Uh, and it was the Christian community that came along and they taught that children were people, they were human beings, and they had eternal souls. 
And that made the big difference because then they began rescuing those infants, those eternal souls from the city walls and from the fields and they raised them as orphans. They were more involved in raising their children than were pagan households because they were interested in raising moral people. The church has always been pro-life. Some of you will know about the Didache. It's a church manual that was written between 50 and 120 AD and it instructed that children should not be aborted or killed at birth. Uh, Pro-choice activists and philosophers will argue that in the 21st century we can't know when life begins. Tertullian had no such problem in the third century. Tertullian said, when we allow that life begins with conception because we contend that the soul begins from conception. In the fifth century, Augustine referred to abortion as a lustful cruelty. He says, therefore, you see how perverse they are. Augustine's contemporary, Jerome, wrote, you may see many women widows before they're wedded who try to conceal their miserable fall by a lying garb, by uh, dis disguising clothing. Some will go so far as to take potions that they may ensure barrenness and thus murder human beings almost before their conception. In the 16th century, John Calvin, in his commentary on Exodus, wrote, if it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. In the mid-20th century, when the United States was becoming involved in the eugenics movement that, plant, that founded Planned Parenthood, theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, and this is very good, I think. He said, destruction of the embryo in the mother's womb is a violation of the right to live, which God has bestowed upon this nascent life. To raise the question whether we are here concerned already with a human being or not is merely to confuse the issue. The simple fact is that God intended to create a human being and that this nascent human being has been deliberately deprived of its life. And this is nothing but murder. But he goes on. A great many different motives may lead to an action of this kind. Indeed, in cases where it is an act of despair performed in circumstances of extreme human or economic destitution and misery, the guilt may often lie rather with the community than with the individual. Precisely in this connection, money may concede a wanton deed, while the poor man's more reluctant lapse may be far more easily disclosed. All these considerations must no doubt have a quite decisive influence on the personal and pastoral attitude towards the person concerned, but they cannot in any way alter the fact of murder. And finally, as late as 1962, the PCUSA, which at the time was the largest Presbyterian denomination before its fracturing, has a policy that says, and the fetus is a human life to be protected by the criminal law from the moment the ovum is fertilized. As Christians, we believe that this should not be an individual decision on the part of the physician and the couple. The decision should be limited and restrained by the larger society. So, I told you that we are in the business of equipping congregations and assisting pastors. Now, it's important to understand that if your congregation is not ready to tackle a discussion on a flashpoint issue like abortion, when you get home, you can open the conversation about life at any place on that spectrum, from fertilization to natural death, 
because what God says about life at any place on that spectrum is true about life at every place on that spectrum. So if you study what God's Word says about life on the issue of um, uh, handicaps, uh, birth anomalies, uh, caring for your elderly parents, uh, you can still steer the, con the conversation ultimately after you build trust in your group, you can still steer that con con conversation back to uh, issues surrounding abortion. Uh, it's got to do a lot with trust. Francis Schaeffer pointed out uh, that the way abortion goes is the way that euthanasia will develop. And we have seen in the last few years that that's exactly the case in assisted suicide. Suicide uh, rates rise in areas where assisted suicide has been legislated by the state because the state gives its weight to it's okay if a doctor decides to do it. And so people who are desperate think, why do I need a doctor? Uh, and the rates go up. Now I want to pause here and offer some encouragement to those who are preaching about life issues. A lot of pastors agree that scripture speaks to all the hard life decisions, all our difficulties. But when it comes down to it, they are reluctant to preach because they don't want to be political. It's a very common um, explanation. They don't want to stir up trouble in the congregation. They don't want to upset members who might have their own personal experiences. They don't know enough about the topic, and they don't want to lose their jobs, which is not not important. Well, I'll just speak to a few of these. I'll just touch on a few of these. The gospel is political. I think if you're a pastor, you get that. Um, because really all politics means is that we live in community and we run into each other and we run over each other and we have challenges together. That's, that's polity. <clears throat> Pardon me. But in the sense of preaching, it's a biblical thing to preach about. Life is biblical. It's, it's scriptural. It's scientific. It's pastoral care. The government is going to do what the government's going to do. I mean, we know that. The, day, the month that uh, plan, pardon me, the month that Roe versus Wade was passed, 19 states had passed legislation um, for pro-life in their individual states. Supreme Court didn't care anything about those 19 states. So the court's going to do what the court's going to do. Uh, the government's going to do what the government's going to do. And the church, as always, responds to the fallout from those things. When I say PPL is compelled by the gospel, another way to look at preaching life issues is as a mission field. Every unborn child deserves the chance to be born and hear the gospel. Evangelizing future generations uh, requires welcoming new life into the world so they can grow and hear the gospel preached. The womb is a mission field. Um, <laughs> there may be women who go, ooh, but... <laughs> But it's true that these people need to be born. They need to be able to hear the gospel so that they can share an eternal life. You don't want to stir up trouble. And the other thing that we all know is you don't have to go looking for trouble in your congregations. Your troub the trouble in your congregations finds you pretty fast, uh, especially when you're not looking. So you shouldn't be afraid to talk about difficult things. Nobody goes looking to die. But as pastors, we don't wait until the wake in the funeral home to talk to people about what awaits them. We don't wait to educate our people about death. Um, we have to go looking for death. We have to go pulling it out and holding it up to the light and letting people hear it and understand it and think about it. 
I believe the way to approach these sermons is a pastoral care way. Uh, you have people in your congregations that are divorced, people that are adopted, people who have experienced abortion, uh, people who've had miscarriages, um, and people who've been abandoned in one way or another. I think that a lot of, I mean, these aren't three points in a poem sermons. These are uh, not stride across the chancel and try to look cool sermons. These are maybe even leave the pulpit and come down and stand on a level with your people and talk about the points of identification that you have with what they're experiencing and what they're suffering, that their pastor is a human being too and their pastor knows what they're experiencing. And that where the Bible calls something sin, then we open the way to mercy and forgiveness and restoration. It's true that you probably don't know enough. Um, I took over the executive directorship on, from uh, four women who preceded me who are amazing, amazing people. I am not them. I read their stuff, and that's how I become as knowledgeable as I've become, and I have much more to learn. The way that I think you can deal with the things that you don't understand is the fallback that, again, uh, we use in situations where the Bible doesn't speak directly to something or to where we don't know the answer to why people are suffering, whatever it is they're suffering, is that we know the character of God. We know that God is good. We know that God is in the business of restoration, redemption, uh, that God is constantly working, whether we can see God at work or not, uh, that we've been promised that we will not be left as orphans, that we will not be abandoned, um, that God is interested in us and interested in our well-being and welfare and certainly interested in children. Um, that's the filter, I believe, through which you preach these sermons, is that we, the things that we know about God trump the things that we don't know about God. I read where Francis Chan the other day said that the seminal scripture for this generation is Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We need to stop apologizing for what God says is right and wrong and just get on with living as God's people. And finally, you don't want to lose your job. I'm right there with you. Um, a few years ago, I taught about same-sex marriage. That did not make the congregation happy, and it made the presbytery that I was in uh, much less happy than that. Um, after a long time, seven or eight months of back and forth painful exchanges, um, they were done with me, and I made as graceful an exit as I could, but God took care of it. God took care of me, took care of my family, I won't say that it wasn't painful. I'm not a martyr or a victim or anything like that, and I sure didn't get a t-shirt. But we're all called to teach. We're all called to proclaim truth. Excuse me. Pastors preach the truth at risk and personal expense during the Revolutionary War, when in England they called it the Presbyterian Rebellion. Nobody's out there calling our pro-life preachers the Presbyterian pro-life preachers. Pastors preached the truth about slavery. hundred years later, they preached it again about um, civil rights. Now this generation is called to preach the truth about God's sovereignty over all human life because in the last 50 years, a perfect storm has developed, less so in some of the uh, more conservative congregations, but certainly in the progressive congregations, you have this perfect storm of lack of authority of the church, 
lack of authority of scripture, lack of confidence in the church and in his preaching. And so what Presbyterians Protecting Life is trying to do is to give congregations back the vocabulary and the words to speak about life, to have these conversations in their homes, in their workplaces, in their schools, at your Bible studies, <coughs> so that they can, they can speak into these issues with comfort. This is not going to be a battle that's won in the streets or the legislature or the courts. It's going to be run in the, one in the pews. <coughs> it's going to be one at the kitchen tables. But it's sure not going to be one if we don't engage the battle. One of the things <coughs> that we ask is when you're opening the conversation, well, sorry, that you help your ministry staff. Pastors need support to preach about these things. They need to know that the congregation is not going to turn on them. They need to know the session is not going to turn on them. They need the encouragement of the session to preach the word in season, out of season, the hard stuff as well as the easy stuff. That means that if you are a ruling elder, when you're out in the congregation and you hear conversations of people sniping at the pastor for what the pastor has just preached, I brought my mother and this is what he preached about. You need to insert yourself into that conversation and run cover for your pastor and say, this is what the church does. This is what the church is called to do. Life teams, there are people in your, in your church who are already doing work on the pro-life uh, pro spectrum. They may be uh, raising money for the Crisis Pregnancy Center. They may be knitting little caps for the hospitals. They may be knitting shawls for the nursing homes. Those people are the ones that are interested in this. You can get those people together into a single cohesive group, call them a life team, have them explore the community and see how the congregation's already engaged, see what's available in your community, what's still needed. Giving meaningful support to your crisis pregnancy center. Many times a crisis pregnancy center believes that they are the experts and that the church helps support them. And in many cases that's true. But if you can make your church an expert and then raise your trust level between your church and your crisis pregnancy center to where you can work together, then what will help the crisis pregnancy center is your presence, but also the pregnancy center can refer women to your church so that they can be discipled and mentored and followed along after. Uh, CareNet, which is a national organization as well, but their ministry is focused on discipling in the sense that what they suggest is that the church become equipped, convince the pregnancy center that you're not, just, you know what you're doing, that you're not going to hurt these women and then create a list of four or five congregations in your community that are similarly equipped and committed to helping women and children. And then having the pregnancy center in their screening process ask people what their faith traditions are, ask women what their faith traditions are. And then as they develop their relationship, you know, I know a church where they can help you, where they are willing to get you a layette, where they are, you know, they're not going to judge you when you come. You know, they're going to be really helpful to you, and then they get them to sign that it's okay for somebody in the church to reach out to these women. But that's kind of a little process that, that's involved, and so you want to pay attention to that. Um, creating a church resource position. I bet you can all name 
the lady or a couple of ladies in your church that everybody admires. This is the church lady and we love her and she loves the kids and and she's just that person. If you can get that person um, to commit and you can help get them trained, maybe through a cooperation with your crisis pregnancy center or through our PPL materials, and get her to a place where she's confident in having these conversations. Take her picture, call her staff, put her in the church directory with her phone number, put her picture on the back of the ladies' room stall doors so that when something happens, you know, I just told you 45% women call themselves, post-abortive women call themselves Christian and attended church in the month before their abortions. And they didn't talk to anybody, but they might have talked to her if she existed and they knew how to find her and they didn't have to ask 10 people, do we have that person and what's her name and do we have a phone number? Why do you need to know? You know, you got to have it out there so people can easily access it. But she can help her make a, a decision for life. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is always the third Sunday in January. Um, again, it's the month of the March for Life. So it's already in the newspaper, it's already on television, it's already on the radio. So it's partly publicized for you. Pick that Sunday. You can use the whole month uh, for an all-church Bible study. You can um, have a concert. Those are really non-threatening things to have a concert that celebrates the Imago Day. Uh, the choir director will love you forever if you do that. Um, we have, uh, PPL has downloadable uh, bulletin inserts for all those Sundays whenever they ha- We've got 12 or 15 years worth on, <clears throat> on the website right now. And um, we also have worship slides. Uh, For those of you who use screens in worship, uh, we have downloadable slides for 52 Sundays of the year. So you can sort of keep that at the top of people's minds throughout the weeks leading up to that so they won't be blindsided by how come we're doing this all of a sudden. Um, So what? What if Roe versus Wade is overturned? That would be great, wouldn't it? But what if it's not overturned? The answer is the same. Um, Both pro-life and pro-choice groups are spending a lot of time and resources um, worrying about something over which we have almost no control, almost no influence. Um, This is going to be done to us, however it's done. It would be great if Roe versus Wade was overturned, but it doesn't really matter because the number of pregnant women isn't going to change if Roe versus Wade is overturned. Um, We have this tsunami of pregnant women out there, and they all need resources, they all need help, they're not turning to the church. One of the reasons they're not turning to the church is because this is how the church treats its leaks in the basement. We put a bucket under it, we let it sit there because it's going to be real expensive to fix, and it's going to be real messy, and it's going to smell, we're going to have to close that room off. Um, All those things that, that leaky plumbing brings and that we just put off and we put off until we have to bail. Um, if they do overturn Roe versus Wade, all those women are going to need, well, the ones that don't buy a plane ticket to New York, I guess, um, are going to have to have some help. And it's going to have to be meaningful help, uh, non-judgmental help. Um, it's going to have to be tangible help. Um, there is a church, I think it's an eco-church in San Antonio, First San Antonio, Bob Fuller is their pastor. Um, we had our annual board meeting there just because they were hospitable to us. We used one of their conference rooms and they fed us a couple of lunches last year. Um, 
but they knew we were there. We didn't talk to the congregation. We didn't have any events while they were there. But they were a congregation that had not taken up any of the life issues in this kind of meaningful way. And I went back to see him a year later, and he said, you know, you, just you guys being here broke the ice, kind of gave people permission to say something. Well, so they started talking among themselves, and what's happening now in this church, and this is a large downtown church with a lot of resources, but still, they are as um, uh, protective, I'm sure, of their building and, and their own territories and things like we get in all our churches. Um, since we were there in the past year, they had a group that got together, decided to remodel the basement. They turned it into a low-income and homeless women's clinic. They hired two nurses, they hired two social workers, and somebody donated an ultrasound machine. Um, that is huge. It's over-the-top huge. Um, big congregation, several thousand people in it. They, you know, we all know those people, but who are they really? <clears throat> discovered when the conversation started, one doctor opened up that he used to be an abortion doctor until he had an epiphany and realized this is not what he was supposed to be doing, and so he started making videos for them <clears throat> on, um, on pro-life stuff and abortion. And then in September, that conversation led to uh, affiliation with five or six other downtown churches, and they're going to have like a week of uh, life event celebrations in San Antonio. Wow, all we did was have a board, all we did was show up. We just sat there and had a board meeting. So it was not our influence in as much as we would like to take credit for something that big. Um, it's just an amazing thing. It's just an amazing thing that they have done. Um, another way that you can help through PPL is to uh, invite people that you know who have had life challenges to give testimony. Um, it's important for people to know they're not alone that this is not the first time that somebody has been diagnosed with a birth anomaly that didn't turn out to be a correct diagnosis. Uh, somebody who had four or five um, babies and was told to do a reduction uh, so that all three babies could survive instead of four and they refused. Um, somebody who had, we have a testimony, it's not online yet, but this man's wife had a extra uterine pregnancy. I'm not exactly sure how that works. It's not an ectopic pregnancy, but the baby is not, in fact, inside the uterus. There's some sort of sex situation going on outside. Obviously not a medical professional. The doctors couldn't see the baby, and so the doctors never suggested an abortion because they did an ultrasound and there wasn't a baby in that uterus. Um, when, they, when the baby was born, they thought there was going to be problems, but there weren't. But God hides things from doctors. So anyway, when, as far as PPL is concerned, there are priests for life that speak for the Catholics. Um, there are many secular uh, organizations that just speak into life issues because a religious argument a, is not going to convince somebody uh, in a secta uh, secular environment. Um, to speak for life. As I said, we only talk to Presbyterians uh, because we're so peculiar. Um, when we were part of the PCUSA alone, we were supported by 80 congregations. Um, now we work in seven different denominations and we're supported by 17. Uh, a lot of that is because they still perceive us to be 
um, a PCUSA exclusive uh, group, and that's not true. So if you would tell your friends, that would be great. Um, if you would help support us, that would be fabulous too, because only Christians give to Christian groups, and believe me, only Presbyterians give to groups with Presbyterian in their names. Um, probably the easiest way to do that is, I, you know, we all get our coffee at Starbucks. Um, Starbucks gives plenty of money to the abortion industry, so if you're giving Starbucks 10 or 12 bucks a week, uh, if you gave us 10 or 12 bucks, you'd at least be up to zero. And I'm not trying to guilt you into this, but I mean, we all spend money at places that support the abortion industry, and we should do something to help groups that do not. So, it's our opportunity that you will take, our hope that you will take this back to your congregations and give them an opportunity to um, uh, test the waters and stretch their muscles and see what sort of things that they might like to do. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.